Well, as we talk about the amazing God who has amazing grace, you'll want to find a Bible and open it up to read along with me. We will be reading uh, two selections today, one from the book of Esther in the Old Testament. You go, you know, I haven't been there lately. Well, go to Psalms right in the middle of your Bible, take a left, go back to Job, and then go back to Esther, and there you are. We'll be in Esther chapter 4, and then the other reading will be in Hebrews chapter 1. So near the end of your New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1. And those of you that have been doing the reading through the Bible with us uh, since January, how's that coming? You doing okay? Give me a little nod if it's going all right. Okay. Guess what? We're two weeks from the New Testament. (laughs) You didn't have to be that excited. But uh, for those of you that may have kind of lost your way as we've been making our way through the Old Testament, uh, get ready. Jump in there with us. In the New Testament. And you can start the Gospels now. We'll get get there in a couple of weeks. Okay. Uh, Need to ask you a question. I want you to think about it in your head and your heart. How do you feel about risk? You know, when we talk about risk, all kinds of uh, people respond to that. There's some who are like risk junkies, right? They just, they don't want to live unless there's some risk going on. The the blood gets flowing and the adrenaline gets pumping if they got a risk thing happening. And uh, sometimes they need to dial that back. So um, we'll talk about that in a minute. Others of you are a little bit risk-averse, right? It's like, uh, I'm glad some people want to take a risk, but I'm not one of those. And so uh, we got something we want to talk to you about as well. But let's think about what is inherent With risk. One of the reasons why risk is risk is because you don't have a certainty about how something will turn out. If you had a certainty about how something would turn out, there would be no risk. You know how it's going to happen. But because you don't, um, a variety of life's experiences can feel kind of scary. So, for example, uh, some of you came from families that had great marriages with your mom and your dad and with your extended family, and you married someone who came from a great family of great marriages with their mom and dad and their extended family, and you only had a real sense of anticipation and excitement and hope about what marriage could be. There were others of us that came from busted, dysfunctional, crazy, you know, wild families. And we didn't have... Uh, the greatest hope, the greatest confidence about what might happen if we ever took the plunge. Now, um, if you're more in that category, then that was a relational risk for you to get married. You didn't know how it was going to turn out. You were afraid that it would be something like your families or, or your extended families. You didn't want to go there if you didn't have to and so on. Now, some of you have taken some financial risk. And if you come from a family of some means and you've seen families, uh, you've seen your dad or whomever take some financial risk and it paid off occasionally, there was a setback, but mostly, you know, there's something to it. It doesn't feel very risky to you. But for some others, you came from uh, little means. You didn't have much to uh, invest in something or to risk uh, in that kind of way. This is pretty scary to you. 
We could talk about various uh, physical types of risk, recreational types of risk. How do you feel about it? Are you a risky type person or not so much? Well, here's uh, where we're going today. If you are going to know God and do some life with God, you will have risk. Now, God doesn't have any risk because God knows everything. God knows how everything's going to turn out, and He has all the power uh, necessary to make it happen the way He wants it to happen. So, uh, He doesn't have risk, but we have all kinds of risk. Uh, some of us, it's a risk to trust God. And for some of you, it was a risk for you to come here today because you had experiences in times past where you took a, a risk on God or you took a risk on the church and, and the whole faith community and it kind of blew up on you, it kind of uh, wounded you, it hurt you. And so just to even be here today, you've taken a risk. And to you, I want to especially say thanks and welcome, and I'm glad you're here. But let's talk biblically about what God's up to when He's inviting us into risk. And we're going to do that with a great case study. Uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Esther and the story of Esther, you have missed it. Uh, you've been doing a little bit of reading in that the last couple of days. You're going to do some more reading in it over the next couple of days before you finish it. So we're going to take that story as a case study and see what God uh, has to say to us, not only about what happened back when, but what's happening with us today. So real quickly, some <clears throat> historical context. You know that uh, Jerusalem had been conquered by the Babylonians. They were in Babylonian captivity for some period of years. Then the Persians came on the scene, and they conquered the Babylonians, and uh, they set the Hebrews free to be able to return to Jerusalem. Thousands did. Thousands returned and began to rebuild their lives and rebuild the temple and so on. Thousands did not. And many of them stayed in Babylon. But many of them moved on into other parts of the Persian Empire. And all that you see there in kind of lavender is the Persian Empire in its day. It was very vast and extensive. And one of its major cities and capital cities was Susa. And that's where our story happens with Esther. Now, Esther is uh, a Jewish girl, and she is lovely to behold. And as it turns out, uh, Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, has gotten sideways with his wife, the queen, Vashti, and so he's deposed her. He's gotten rid of her, and he's now put on like this incredible beauty pageant to uh, acquire his next queen. Now, some have said this was the saddest day in history for males because he took to himself the most beautiful virgins throughout the entire Persian Empire. So you can imagine the rest of the male population going, oh, well, gee, thanks. So he just took all of the... Um, most fine, fair, beautiful ladies and brought them into his palace. And he began to parade them uh, and examine them in ways to, to see which one was going to be the, the next queen. And uh, by the sovereignty of God, it's a strange story that God would tap one of his uh, children, one of 
uh, Jewish little gals to be in the running, in the beauty pageant, to be the, the, the queen of Persia. But he moved in that kind of way. She was in the, the contest. She ends up winning. And she becomes the queen. If you haven't read this, you've got to go back and read it. It's a fascinating story. And uh, what you see God weaving throughout the whole thing is one of the best pictures of sovereignty that you'll ever look at. Now, Esther uh, was an orphan girl. She did not have parents. They had already died. But she did have a cousin who was very close to her by the name of Mordecai. And he had treated her like a daughter. And Mordecai was a man of God. And Mordecai had been a part of God's work in Esther's life to see her in the palace, in the running, become queen, and so on. Now, um, there's another character in this whole story, a guy by the name of Haman. And Haman is uh, kind of a princely type dude who uh, Hazarus has entrusted a lot of power and a lot of influence to. And, and Haman really feels it. I mean, this guy is an egomaniac, and he wants everybody in the world to think that he is the greatest. And, I mean, he prances around and struts around, and he's constantly bragging on himself. And he gets the king to pass these little edicts where people have to bow to Haman and uh, proclaim how great Haman is and so on like that. Well, enter Mordecai, who won't have any of that. He won't bow to anybody or anything other than Jehovah God. And so here comes Haman one day and he's prancing around and strutting around and everybody's bowing and everybody's ooing and eyeing, you know, about Haman and, except for Mordecai. And when Haman sees Mordecai not responding to him as he demanded everybody respond to him, he gets furious. And you, you want to look at a picture of fury and rage. It's Haman. He is so nuts over Mordecai not bowing to him, he's, he becomes possessed. He becomes obsessive about the whole thing. He decides he's going to find some uh, way to kill Mordecai. And the way the story continues to unfold is that he decides he's going to eliminate all the Jews. And this is really why we have the entire book of Esther. Because it's a record of how uh, a power in its day tried to eliminate the people of God in totality. Because Haman was going to eliminate every Jew that drew breath. And he actually laid the uh, means for that to happen with the king's blessing. What the king doesn't know is that his own queen, Esther, is a Jew. He does not know that. And so he's about to wipe out all of her people uh, with an edict that he proclaims on Haman's behalf, which will include his wife, and he doesn't even know it. Well, Mordecai gets hold of Esther and tells her what Haman has devised and how it's coming down on, on her people and that she's got to do something. She's got to go to the king and, and ask him to change his mind about this whole thing. And uh, Esther, ever the pragmatist, says, Mordecai, you don't understand. See, nobody just goes and shows up at the king's doorway without him having already summoned you. If I just showed up without him summoning me, he could kill me. And unless he had a momentary uh, feeling of mercy and grace and extended his scepter to me, if I show up uninvited, I die. And Mordecai says something very interesting to Esther at that point. He says, you know what? You don't have it 
as safe as you think. Just because you're in that palace, just because you have all those servants and attendants, just because you have all this prestige now, don't be lulled into thinking you're safe. And so she goes and prays about it, and she decides that she's going to approach the king. And uh, the way the drama unfolds, when she approaches him, he is taken with seeing her, and it's been about a month since he's seen her. You know, go figure. And so he's, like, delighted to have her in his presence. He extends the scepter, and she comes, and she's able to begin to uh, approach him on behalf of her people. And she does it in a rather wise way. kind of ingenious way. So we're going to get into some of this. And you have um, your Bible. So let's begin to look in Esther chapter 4. And here's what I want you to think about right out of the gate. What we're going to see is that the whole uh, tension between risk And safety is really pretty much a myth. The whole notion that safety is something to pursue and to embrace and to try to secure for yourself is pretty much a myth. And so we want to demythologize risk and safety uh, with some of the reading that we're going to do here in just a minute. Now, let, let me just take you down that road for just a moment. For those of you that are risk-averse and you you want it to be safe around you, you don't want anything to go wrong. You don't want anything to hurt. You don't want anything to be disappointing. And so you you play it safe as much as you can play it safe. Friends, it's a myth to think you're safe. And I don't mean to be lighthearted about this because it's happened in our own community. But we've literally had one in our own community to drive down the road a few blocks from here not too long ago, a couple of years ago, and a tree fell across Avondale while the car is going down, and it just so perfectly timed that the tree fell on the car and it killed the person driving the car. Friends, you are not safe. You're just driving down the road. Boom. You go, okay, well, I'll just back up from there. I won't drive down the road. Okay? And again, I don't mean to be lighthearted about it because it's happened in our community. But literally, a woman is at home, asleep in her bed. There's a little bit of a rainstorm outside. Tree blows over, falls on the house, falls on the bedroom, and kills her. And you say, okay, I'm, I'm not going around trees. I'm just going to remove trees from my life. Should we talk about sinkholes? Earthquakes, tsunamis, floods. We are in volcano land. I mean, we could talk on and on and on. It's just a myth to think that you can be really safe, not to mention the frailties of your body. You can stroke. You can have a heart attack. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff that can happen with you. You are never safe. And so what Esther and much of the Bible tries to get across to us is that this is a fallen, broken world full of unknowns, full of uncertainties, full of risk. And so the question is, how will you do risk? In what ways will you live a risky life? You go, yeah, but there's just that potential of loss. And if I live in a risky way and lose, that's one thing. But if I live in a risky way and the people I love lose, 
then that's another. I mean, is that even fair? Is that even sane to live risky so that I might lose and those that are close to me might lose? Well, let me ask it to you this way. What if you don't risk? What is lost when you don't risk? I mean, so many of uh, the stories that we've been reading out of these Old Testament readings for these weeks, those stories wouldn't even exist today if there hadn't been risk. If those men and women hadn't taken steps of faith forward into the face of risk, we, we wouldn't even have our story. We wouldn't even have our, our saving work of God in our lives. So, I've given you some of the background. Let's pick up the story in chapter 4. and We'll pick it up with verse 13. This is when Mordecai comes up to tell Esther, you have got to go and approach the king. So Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You get what Mordecai is telling Esther? Don't think it's all safe and secure where you are because you're the queen. You've got uh, attendants and guards and walls and the palace and all this kind of stuff. If it starts going badly for the Jews, it goes badly for you. If Jews start dying, you'll likely die. And know this. In the sovereignty of God, in the work of God, He is going to deliver His people one way or another. And if He does it without you, you'll have missed it. You and your entire father's household, you know, you're just an, you will have missed the work of God. And then he goes on to say, now who knows? It may be for this very reason that God allowed you to be born into this world and to have this position as queen of Persia. Well, it was. I mean, that's what God was up to. Why has God got you in this world? What difference is he making through your one single solitary life that seems so often insignificant? Friends, If there's anything we're getting out of the book, it's this. There are big, high, holy purposes that God has for you. It makes a difference that you're here, and He wants to make a difference through you. His plans include that. However, it'll take some risk. The second thing I want you to see out of this story is that reward is defined. You see, you will take risk... If it seems like the reward is great enough or sufficient enough, if I think that I'm going to know a certain measure of joy and happiness and fulfillment being married, I'll take that risk. Even if I had the worst, most dysfunctional background uh, that preceded that. If I think that there will be a payoff with that financial risk, I'll do it. If I think the reward is sufficient. And so it is with matters of faith. Look with me in verse 15. So Esther 
told the attendants to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now something's happened in that woman's heart. That's gone from, are you crazy? You want me to go approach the king when he hasn't summoned me? To, I'm going. And if I perish, I perish. Now friends, that is not fatalistic. And you've got to hear the difference there. Fatalism is this pessimism that just says, well, you know, nobody's in control and Nothing can be helped. There's just a course that's set there. and Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Might as well go ahead. No, this is a faith-filled, God's on the throne, God's sovereign. And if He wants to use my life and see me through this, He will. And if He, if he chooses to advance His cause by my death, then He will. Does that sound like anybody else? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Our God is well able to deliver us from you, Nebuchadnezzar, in this fiery furnace. We believe He will. But even if He doesn't, we will not bow to your idol. We could go on and on and on with the stories of the men and the women of faith who had that kind of disposition, that kind of faith, because they had defined the reward. I want to know faithfulness to God I want to know the purposes and plans and the pleasure of God more than I want to know anything else. And if that means I perish, I perish. Well, for those of you that know the story, you know that uh, the king received her. The king responded to her. She kind of lays this little trap to show Haman for the wicked guy that he is. And all of that is... uh, made clear to the king. The king ends up executing Haman. Sorry for spoilers, but uh, i got to do it for what we're talking about today. So, moving on to chapter 9, if you'll turn a couple of pages over. Uh, the Jews have been now delivered because their adversary, Haman, has been executed. Uh, there's just one detail left. Haman had gotten the king to put into law that on a certain day, every Jew in the Persian Empire would be killed. He got that put into a law. See, today's not the only day that laws get made that go against the will of God. Okay, It happened then. So he gets it put into a law. So uh, the queen has to persuade the king to change that law, and he does. And see what happens. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Azarhars to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. On the very day, Adar 13, that all the Jews were supposed to be killed, 
it was reversed and all the enemies of the Jews were killed. Now friend, that is a a bit of a foreshadowing of, of what happened at the cross of Christ. On the very day that the entire Jesus movement was supposed to be extinguished, the Jesus movement exploded. And such is the power of a sovereign God for reversals. Now, I want to bring this home to us. What are the implications for us? How do we go about taking God-inspired, God-stirred, God-planned kinds of risk? How do we go about doing that? And we take it right out of the story of Esther. And the first is this. We have to dismiss the enchantment of safety. It's just overrated. It's a myth. It doesn't really exist. You're never really totally, completely safe. And so the question is, will I place myself in the sovereignty of God, trusting that I'm in His hand, And I will move and have my being according to His will and His plans. And if I live, I live unto Him. And if I die, I die unto Him. And blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the mentality of biblical Christ-following people. We're told in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 4, this way. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they could do. I mean, that's almost a minimizing statement. They can kill you? That's all they can do to you? I wouldn't worry about it. The second thing I'd say to you is this. Decide what treasure you will pursue. What's most important to you? What really has a grip on your heart, your aspirations, your affections, your appetites? The way the people in the Bible would say, I don't know about you, but it's for me and my house. It's the Lord. And I I just want to take a moment to remind us uh, how that has always been so with biblical people and why it is so, it should be so for people that follow God today. So you know the story of Moses and you know how he'd been rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, the, the princess of Egypt. And he's raised in the palace. He's raised to be a Pharaoh. He's raised to be somebody that's going to rule and reign over in that day the, the greatest nation in, on the planet. But he comes to a point in his life where he realizes There is a God in heaven who's not acknowledged in Egypt, whose I am, and I will be about his business rather than what's going on in this empire of Egypt. So uh, Hebrews 11 says it to us this way. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So he considered the reproach of Christ... Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Somehow he began to engage God, know God, 
become uh, exposed to the, the magnificence and the greatness of God to such an extent, he was like, everything else is nothing compared to the excellency of God. And he traded it all in for God. So join me now in the book of Hebrews. And we want to read just a little bit in the first chapter. We would do well to read the entire book. Okay? But we're just going to suffice today with the first chapter as we get into the supremacy of Christ. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Speaking of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, and today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, just quickly, be reminded of what we just read. Jesus. God's final revelation. We've got the entire collection in the Bible. Little revelation, little revelation, little revelation, little revelation. Then we get to Jesus. Boom! Final. Supreme. Glorious. Revelation of who God is. The heir of all things. The creator of the world. The radiance of God's glory. The imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by His Word made purification for our sins, sits at the right hand of majesty, enthroned forever with the scepter of righteousness, is worshipped by the angels. His rule has no end. See, what are we talking about? We're talking about defining the reward. What's going to be your treasure? What's going to be the highest, greatest thing in your life? How do I risk? Dismiss the enchantment of safety. Decide what the treasure is that you're going to pursue. And then determine to be radical. 
determined to be radical. Now, let's pause there for just a moment to get a good, clear definition of what radical is. Because when you think of radical and you ascribe that to sports, it's like extreme sports. You know, you apply that to politics. So one-sided, can't be open-minded about it. You apply that to religion. Fanaticism comes to mind, things like that. And those are meanings of radical. But those are like second, third, fourth level meanings of radical. You know what the first meaning of radical is? It means the root or the foundation of something. So in other words, to make a radical difference means that you make a difference all the way down to the foundation of a person's life, all the way down to the root of who they are. Esther was radical. She was all the way down to the foundation of who she was. Not queen, not the one in the palace, not the one with all the attendants, but child of God, daughter of of the Lord's pleasure. Here for purpose and mission in any way that God wants to play that out in her life. If I perish, I perish. So how do I risk? You get down to the core of who you are. Are you His? Has He redeemed you, forgiven you, transformed you? Is He alive in you, bringing life through you? Here's the way the Apostle Paul said it. He was so taken with Jesus, so taken with the life that God had given him, so taken with the mission that the Lord had laid uh, before his life. He said, I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's just, Lord, give me another day to do that. So how closely do you hold your life? Do you try to secure it? Do you try to be safe? See, it flies in the face of the Jesus life. Jesus said, lose your life and you find it. You try to hold on to it. And you lose it. Now, friends, as we've been talking about this, I'm trusting that the very Spirit of God has been communing and communicating with your mind and your heart, with your thoughts and your feelings. You've already been having scenarios come up in your mind that feel risky to you with respect to faith. He's already bringing you to a point of decision. Will you be a faithful follower of Christ that lives the adventure of risk? Will you have that faith conversation? Will you take a stand on whatever issue? Will you be found uh, large-hearted, caring, compassionate, sacrificial, and giving to those who have need? Will you come alongside of those that are in a very painful, difficult journey right now and do life with them? Risk. Here's the thing that you'll want to remember. What God's doing with us 
and the risk that we take, it can bring about a suffering so that others may live. That's the whole formula of the God life. I have some sacrifice, I have some pain, I have some loss, and God uses that to bring life to someone else. Jesus goes to a cross and we have life. We have some suffering, we have some setback, we have some disappointment, we have some pain, some difficulty, and because we're in Him and His sovereignty is working around all that, it works for life for someone else. As opposed to some other groups, some other religions, some other movements, that their suffering is so that others may die. Others may be eliminated. Man, what a radical difference in the life that we have in Christ and the life that others have outside of Christ. So, will you? Will you prize Jesus? before anything else. You just have to bring the stuff that's so important to you and put it in the shadow of Jesus' greatness and you'll see it for what it is. Will you prize Him first? And will you yield your life to Him radically? Let me pray for you. So, Father, you've already been stirring up scenarios in our mind and our heart that will call for risk from us. And I just pray for my friend today that struggles with that, that grapples with that. Uh, Lord, that you'd bring a touch, that you'd bring a whisper, that you'd bring a stirring that helps us to move forward in the adventure. We pray, Father, that you guard our hearts from foolish risk so that we may take biblical and godly risk to your glory and so that life works for others. We pray in the name of Jesus.